Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about the impeachment proceedings with Rick Perlstein. He knows everything about the Nixon impeachment. He's got some striking insights into the differences and also the similarities. We'll also talk about one of our favorite writers, John Le Carre. He has a new book out, Agent Running in the Field. They're calling it his Brexit book. John Powers will comment. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. But first, impeachment, of course. Trump Watch starts right now. Now it's time to talk about impeachment. For comment and some historical analysis, we turn to Rick Perlstein. He's the award-winning author, most recently, of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. And he wrote the classic book, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller and was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. Rick's former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice and a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared all over the place, Newsweek, The New York Times, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. I want to talk about public opinion then and now. At the start of the Trump impeachment hearings in the House last week, opinion polls showed 52% support for holding the hearings, 45% opposed, and even more surprising, support for removing Trump from office right now is 47% in favor, 45 opposed. I wonder at the beginning of impeachment hearings on Nixon, were there 47% in favor of removing him from office? Well, you have to remember that the thing developed quite gradually and quite slowly. So we're talking about impeachment. The impeachment process in the House Judiciary Committee was something that you know began and started working its way through the system in spring of summer 1974. So before that, in the summer of 1973, there were there were hearings on Watergate in the Senate that were led by Sam Irvin that began in May of 1973. And what really kind of broke the back of his popularity and got people started talking about impeachment was this thing called, you know, the Saturday Night Massacre, which happened in October of 1973, when there was a special prosecutor who demanded he produce the tapes, the evidence that he committed crimes, and he responded by firing the special prosecutor. And that's when, you know, seeing people showing up in the front of the White House wearing Uncle Sam suits and saying, you know, honk for impeachment and all that. So it was a very slow process, although I always like to point people out to the fact that, you know, we had our Saturday Night Massacre, which was the Comey firing, you know, two and a half years ago. So in a lot of ways, it's slower, right? But um, in this highly partisan atmosphere, I think people were willing to give the president a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. Don't forget the only poll that matters in 1972, he won 49 states and and something like 60% of the vote in the election. And my favorite poll result was a week before that, 60% of the public said that they trusted him more than they trusted George McGovern, who only got 29% in that poll. So he was a really, he was really good at his cover up. <laughs> He wasn't like, you know, Donald Trump, who, you know, kind of spouted admissions to crimes, you know, on the public record. Very different cats. 
very different processes. The thing that I'm repeating over and over again is that really Watergate fundamentally was about Richard Nixon trying to hide evidence because he knew that if the evidence came out, the world would know he was guilty and he had enough shame to realize that he would have to leave office. On the other hand, Donald Trump seems perfectly willing to, you know, do things like release the transcript and, you know, admit that he's guilty in, in public. And that's even more frightening because he knows that no matter how obvious his guilt is, he's always going to have a solid wall of people in the Republican Party willing to defend him. And he's not going to have to leave office at all because he has no shame. And he said that at the very beginning of the 2016 election campaign, that famous quote in the Iowa primary campaign where he said he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters talking about the loyalty of his base. Chosen to stage a natural experiment as to find out whether this is the case. He's clearly a very dedicated uh, social scientist. (laughs) Well, of course, Watergate is very much on the minds of everybody involved here. Nancy Pelosi said last week that Trump's pressure on Ukraine to uh, come up with dirt on Joe Biden, quote, makes what Nixon did look almost small, close quote. She said what Trump did was, quote, much worse than what Nixon did in covering up the burglary at the Democratic National Committee. I wonder if you agree with Nancy Pelosi on that. Well, if, she's, if, if she was so hot to try it against Trump, I want to know why she didn't get there on this thing a heck of a long time ago. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're both terrible and they're both unconstitutional and they're both profound threats to the constitutional order. I like to point out that if you really want a good parallel, if you want a secret foreign policy, we're out of the basement of the White House against American policy. Look at Iran-Contra, which everyone seems to have forgotten about, maybe because the Democrats really didn't have the stomach to fight that one to the end. Well, remind us why the Iran-Contra affair in the late days of the Reagan administration seems like a, a revealing parallel and what conclusions you draw from it. What happened in Iran-Contra was this unbelievably surreal scheme in which, you know, Ronald Reagan and, you know, the conservatives around him were desperate to funnel money to the anti-communist opposition, the Contras in Nicaragua, whom Reagan uh, announced were the moral equivalent of the founding fathers, even though they were, you know, murderous thugs. And there was very low public support for that. And Ronald Reagan, if you recall, kept on going on TV and giving giving these hair on fire speeches talking about how it's only this many miles away from San Antonio that that's being taken over by, you know, the communist conspiracy and no one in the public cared. So the people around him just decided they were going to do this on his own, you know, really pretty much with, with, with Reagan's knowing approval. And they chose a very strange way to do it. Americans kept on being seized as hostages by the allies of Iran in in the Lebanese war that Reagan had chosen to get involved in the middle of. This is rather far from Nicaragua, I believe. Rather. uh, But they they needed cash and they wanted to get these guys out. So these kind of scumbag arms dealers would come to to Washington and say, "We we have ties to moderates in the Iranian regime. And if you show good faith by selling us missiles in our war against Iraq, then we'll send the word and they'll release American hostages. And they would do it. You know, Reagan sent missiles to our enemy, Iran, and lo and behold, the hostages were not released anyway. 
so that was kind of one of the many scandalous things about this policy, even though it was supposedly stated American policy that we don't you know, negotiate with hostages. And they would sell the missiles that cost $18 million for $50 million. <laughs> so there was that hustle too. And they would take the extra money and they would send it to the Contras. And, and by the way, Oliver North would take some of it and buy snow tires and you know, buy, buy a Bogro alarm for his house. So there was all kinds of grifting going on on the side. Surprise, surprise. But to make a long story short, you know, they created this kind of private foreign policy with their own funding sources, even after Congress had specifically passed laws outlawing sending military assistance to Contras. And yet this did not end up with impeachment hearings against Reagan. Why not? Very, very much so. I think that the kind of mandarins who run Washington and the bipartisan foreign policy elite and the Democrats really didn't have the stomach to take this thing to the end because, you know, we had only chased the president out of office 13 years before that. Lyndon Johnson had kind of left office in basically a state of shame after the Vietnam War. He chose not to run for re-election. And I think people said enough is enough. And there really was this kind of too big to fail attitude that if we keep on taking on presidencies, then the kind of smooth functioning of the American system can't work. And the Republican Party received a very different signal, which was that basically it was open season. They had a uh, blank check. And, you know, the next Republican president is George H.W. Bush, and he pardons the Iran-Contra felons. We're hearing a lot of talk about pardons now from Donald Trump. And then, of course, the next president, uh, Republican president after that, George W. Bush, does all kinds of chicanery around spying on American citizens. And Barack Obama says after that that, you know, it's really behooves us to look forward and not backward. And then we have financial crisis and there's no accountability for that. Again, too big to fail. And now we have a president who's really dictatorially minded, who seems determined to take this thing to its uttermost. Ed Cox, Nixon's uh, son-in-law, was on Fox News recently, told Fox News that Trump told him that Nixon should have, quote, fought all the way through the impeachment trial in the Senate instead of resigning. What do you think about that? Uh, Well, you know, if that had happened, he would have received a pretty profound humiliation because I think when the Republican leadership went to him, what they told him was that he, he only had something like 15 votes in the Senate. You know, that's the Roy Cohn method. You just basically deny, 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 and you don't accept any evidence against you. He also said that the um, Watergate impeachment was a complete partisan affair, which is completely true if you ignore all the Republicans who supported it. (laughs) Great. You know, you're famous, legendary for your mastery of all of the littlest uh, revealing facts about uh, this history. Let's talk about Earl Landgreeb. (laughs) You know, Earl Landgreeb, was a guy who was so out there in the context of 1974 that his very name became kind of a synonym for a long time afterwards for kind of lunatic, crazy, out there, wackadoodle extremism. But I think today he probably would be very high in the leadership of the Republican Party, don't you think? Earl Langrieb was uh, an Indiana congressman best known to that point for a scheme to smuggle Bibles into the Soviet Union secretly to, you know, basically persuade 
the good, dirty Russian proletariat that Christianity was the answer to all their woes. But basically, he went on the Today Show the morning before Nixon's resignation and said that he would be supporting his president, even if you had to drag him out of there and shoot him. The NBC reporter said, uh, but what about the smoking gun evidence we have on tape that Richard Nixon had been you know, lying for you know, two and a half years? And Earl Langry famously said, don't confuse me with the facts. That's the Jim Jordan technique, just kind of to, to shout, don't confuse me with the facts and, you know, make up your own. I remember complaining about the Watergate investigation and the articles of impeachment that the House eventually voted that Nixon's real crimes, as we call them, were not his cover-up of the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. His real crimes, we said, were against the people of Vietnam, his cover-up of the way he sabotaged the peace talks, his illegal bombings of Cambodia, his overthrow of democracy in Chile. There are similar complaints today about the Democrats' current focus on Trump's dealing with Ukraine when there are so many other terrible things he's done. What do you think about this parallel? I would say two things. The first is that when the House began working on articles of impeachment, they did include an article for his secret bombing of Cambodia for which he, you know, created these double ledgers, like a mafia don who would have like one ledger about, you know, his payoffs and one for the legitimate front business. But that's an important comparison to today because what happened in the House Judiciary Committee was that basically an equal number of Republicans and Democrats on the committee organized themselves into what they called a fragile coalition and said, if we're going to impeach a president, we have to do so on articles that both parties agree on. So it really proves the extent to which this was this bipartisan process that you had these kind of public-minded Republicans who are perfectly willing to uh, abandon their president if their consciences directed them to. So that's one thing. But the other part of it is, yeah, I really do think that this is problematic, this, this idea that Pelosi and Schiff have, that if you kind of bundle this into this tidy little package that the public can understand and turn the investigation only into this small what some people would consider a venial sin compared to a lot of the other things Trump did, the public will understand it better and they can better uh, persuade public opinion. I have a very different interpretation of this, which is that when Trump is acquitted, which he will be by this majority Senate, run by this authoritarian political party, the Republicans, he'll just say, basically, what are you going to do? Impeach me again, right? And he's going to see it as a blank check to do even worse things. So I think that you have to kind of go for broke. You're going to shoot the king, you can't miss. It's, it's too late now. I think they've kind of, the die is cast, but they should have made this as kind of overwhelmingly complete reckoning with the entire anti-constitutional conception that Trump came to the presidency with and pull everything together. You know, when they started, when Archibald Cox started his independent prosecutors investigation, they had seven different task forces about different aspects wow. of crimes in the Nixon administration. And this stuff included taking bribes for the milk industry so the milk, the milk industry could get price supports. It included, you know, an international conglomerate, international telephone and telegraph bribing the Republican Party in order to um, uh, get favorable consideration on a merger that they wanted to do. You know, it was, wasn't just Watergate and the associated cover-up. And, and that, that was also 
uh, a distinguishing feature of the Irvin Committee hearings was that basically they covered everything. You know, it's like they would turn over one rock and they'd find some other awful crime. So pretty soon they're talking about, you know, what you will call the Houston memo, a memo in 1970 when the staffers that recommended breaking in to uh, opponents' offices and Nixon approved the memo and it was kind of unapproved a couple of weeks later. You know, they got uh, into things like um, the way Nixon uses public money to improve his private residences. You know, they got into things like a $100,000 donation he took from a financier who was a fugitive who wanted to come back to the United States. And pretty soon this narrative was established. It wasn't a complex narrative because it was so big that what the public came away with was that the Nixon administration was corrupt from, from stem to stern. And I think that was the reason why by the time they had this smoking gun evidence, people were willing to take this extraordinary and frightening step of abandoning the president, you know, of saying that we cannot move forward as a country, as a democratic Republic with this guy in the Oval Office. Rick Perlstein. His books include The Invisible Bridge on the Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. Frank Rich called it a Rosetta Stone for Reading America and Its Politics Today, an epic work. Thank you, Rick. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Take care. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch Podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. <music> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. One of our favorite writers has a new book out, John Le Carre. It's called Agent Running in the Field. He's now 88 years old. He's written 26 books, which have been published in 50 countries and 40 languages. They're about loyalty and betrayal. Many are about the ambiguities of the Cold War. Our protagonist in the new Le Carre is Nat. He's a 47-year-old veteran of Britain's secret intelligence service. He believes his years running agents in the field are over. He's been put out to pasture by headquarters at a place called The Haven, a decrepit building in the back streets of North London that we are told is the office's home for lost dogs. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's best known as critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. His reviews are heard by something like 3 million people on every NPR station in the country. He's also been a film critic for Vogue and before that, the LA Weekly. And he's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. His books include Sore Winners, it's about George Bush's America, and WKW, about the wonderful Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai. John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, Nat, our protagonist, is not only a runner of spies, he's also a passionate badminton player. Tell us about his regular opponent, Ed. Well, he is the champion at his local club. And one day he's just won a match and this young man comes bullying his way up and insists on playing him. This guy named Ed. And at first he doesn't want to, but the guy's just so insistent that he finally agrees to play Ed. And so they begin playing and Ed turns out to be 
a really good badminton player. So they kind of bond and they would play badminton and afterwards they will go have a beer. And over beer, Ed will talk about how much he hates Brexit, how much he hates Trump, and basically be outraged by the state of the way the country's going. And, and that's their relationship. Ed does have a certain kind of eloquence. He calls Brexit an unmitigated clusterfuck, an act of self-immolation in which the British public is being marched over a cliff by a bunch of rich, elitist carpetbaggers posing as men of the people. So Ed is the kind of wild and crazy guy in contrast to our protagonist, Nat, who gets to be the calm and reasonable one. Yes, and, and the interesting thing is that Nat essentially agrees with Ed on Brexit and Trump. But, of course, he's... He, he's suave and ed is comes from a, a kind of a religious background of the kind that ep thompson used to write about where he's a true believer and so therefore he's passionate and unironic whereas nat's job has always been to be the slick charming one so you never quite know what he thinks except we know because he's the narrator of the book and we know that he essentially agrees with ed and ed is really not very appealing he's kind of unpleasant he's kind of awkward kind of a loser socially and and politically he's utterly predictable yes he seems like a cliche of something and he doesn't fit into his world you know and as as you're reading you don't know where this is going to go you know he's important because it's a john le carré novel and the book begins with a badminton challenge that clearly has to mean something <laughs> and because he's named ed you think oh you know is he edward snowden is he edward r murrow is you know there are lots of eds out there and so you're trying to figure out what he's going to be but you don't, you really you just know he matters but you don't know why and there's another character on the team of misfits and losers, there's one who doesn't fit in, and it's a young woman named Florence Flo. Tell us about her. Florence is sort of a rising star, but the one fear that the service has about her is that she feels, maybe feels things too intensely. She's too emotional. She hasn't yet learned to be as cold-blooded as the most classically cold-blooded one is George Smiley. They're training her in the haven in order to make her less human than, than she is. Her politics seem once again to be kind of aligned to the anti-Brexit, anti-Trump thing, but that's less explicit than in the case of Ed. Agent running in the field is being promoted by the publisher as Le Carre's Brexit book. Seems to me it's more than that. Oh, it is. Well, I mean, Brexit doesn't really figure in so much. I mean, it does figure in in the sense that the, the character Ed is constantly attacking Brexit. But it fits into, the, I think, the larger pattern of Le Carre's books about, especially the British ruling classes, delusional desire to matter and feel important in the world. So it's also a book about keeping Europe together. It's a book about one of the, one of the great Le Carre themes is the way that the United States is the big bully boy. And that although Le Carre dislikes the U.S. for that, what he really dislikes are the people of his social class sucking up to the U.S. in order to have an illusion that they have are powerful and matter in the world. You know, all the way through the books, that's like one of the great underlying themes. Yeah, and while Ed is obsessed with Brexit, Florence has her own preoccupations. She's concerned about the crimes of the super-rich. Uh, there's a Ukrainian oligarch who she wants to spy on, who's connected to the 
Putin circles. So she's got different preoccupations. And then there's another character, Nat's wife, Prue, who's a human rights attorney. And she's not as obsessed with Brexit as the other ones. She has her own concerns. She's working on on human rights. So she's just actually doing probably the good progressive work, but doing it officially as a lawyer. And and you assume she's anti-Brexit, I mean, all, all the way through the book, but she never talks about Brexit. It's not it's not preoccupying her. But Having been in London recently, knowing every single person of that type, of of course she's anti-Brexit. And she's also concerned not only with human rights in general, her immediate project is to bring down Big Pharma, and she, she disagrees with Nat about the rule of law. She thinks spy agencies shouldn't violate individual rights. Oh, oh yes. No, I mean, the, the thing is, Nat is the slippery one who more or less gets along with all of these people, partly because he is shifty and he never is fully committal on anything, at least through most of the book. I mean, I think part of the logic of the book is he's forced to finally actually believe something and act on it rather than simply believe it and then not act on it. Well, as for Le Carre himself, he's done some interviews promoting the book where he describes himself politically as basically a a liberal Democrat, and he sees the embattled democratic forces of Europe and the United States threatened by this unlikely alliance of Trump and Putin. In some ways, he seems more committed now to the liberal democracies of the West facing Putin than he did in the 60s and 70s when the United States and Britain were facing the Soviet Union. Is that a fair statement? I think it's a fair statement. I think partly because the books that he was writing in the 60s and 70s, he was still more steeped in the fictional world that he created where the Cold War provided the, the political structure for everything. And then he could then write about someone like Smiley, who was, of course, the great Le Carre hero, but, but not actually heroic. If you if you follow Smiley's career outside of the books, where he's like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, where he's bringing, you know, bringing Carla, the Soviet bigwig, you know, capturing him somehow. If you leave that aside, Smiley in early your books sends people off to their death. He gets people to believe things knowing that it will kill them and still has them go do it. And Lucario was always filled with the ambivalence about that, but it never seemed politically big in the way that it seemed since, I think, since the end of the Cold War. Because I think the Cold War provided a framework against which he could work. But once he had to provide his own framework, I think his his own political beliefs became increasingly strong in the books. Yeah, there's a wonderful line in the book where one of Le Carre's characters describes the foreign secretary as a, quote, fucking Etonian narcissistic elitist without a decent conviction in his body, bar his own advancement. This has been a preoccupation of Le Carre really since the spy who came in from the cold. His father famously was a professional con man. And this is, I think, prepared him more than most to look at politicians and government officials and see which ones are essentially con men. In this case, the foreign secretary is, you know, may well have been at this point Boris Johnson when he was writing the book. And Boris Johnson does seem very much like the kind of con man that his father was, able to seem charming. I mean, he, has, he knows a lot of the con men tricks. And while Le Carre, you know, loathes the upper-class twits who run uh, Britain, He's not at all romanticizing the spies. There's another 
classic Lucare line where he says the spies are not, quote, saints or martyrs. Instead, they're a squalid procession of vain fools, traitors, sadists, and drunkards, people who play cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten lives, close quote. This comes from the spy who came in from the cold 1963. Would you say in this book he still feels the same way about MI6 that he did back in 1963? Oh, I think he does. I mean, I think the, I think the continuous thing with him is that he does think it's a nasty, dirty business serving different kinds of masters over the years. And he doesn't like any of the masters either. I mean, in a way, I always thought that part of the Lucare thing is that he does what the Godfather movie did, which was take people who are doing ghastly stuff, yet making the world they're in so much fun to be inside that you wind up identifying with people you know are objectively loathsome. And, you know, over the, over the years, I think he's tried to make it more explicit. Although Spy Who Came In From The Cold is about basically the classic Lucare thing, betrayal. If, which is you take people's beliefs, get them to work for you in order to sell them out for your personal advantage. And almost every book contains some version of that al- along the way. That is his sense of what spying is. Yet, as a person who's read all of the books, you know, some of them more than once, I love being inside that world, which serves one valuable function because you then understand like how those people love being inside that world because you're always interpreting there are people wearing masks. It's always exciting and interesting in a way that ordinary life sometimes feels that it isn't. And that world is quickly becoming the world of the past as far as intelligence services go. One of the things we learned from Edward Snowden was about the difference between human intelligence, humint as they call it, and SIGINT, signals intelligence, that's the mass data gathering of metadata of billions of phone calls and Facebook posts and text messages and Google searches. Lucare's spies have all these human frailties. They have ambitions and secret loves and blindness and loyalty and, as you say, betrayal. And none of this exists in the new world of algorithms doing the metadata collection. Yes, well, it's interesting because you also see, I think, see the same thing in TV police shows, for instance, where a lot of police work now really is, especially in Britain, where every corner seems to have a CC camera, okay, is that the cop shows are about people looking at camera footage. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it, I mean, in the old days, you like, you used, like, you know, like, some white guy would go into a dodgy neighborhood and you'd, and you'd knock on the door. And the idea was, oh, you're learning about the city by go- following this cop. You know, now they just look at the footage or they check cell phone records. And the spy version is the even more elaborate version of this. In the French spy series, The Bureau, which which is a terrific series and, and people should watch, you, you can see how the basically how the tech world is entering their world, yet yet part of the greatness of the show is you never lose the human side of it. Well, the classic Lucare books don't have happy endings from the very beginning. We've talked about it many times, the spy who came in from the cold. The end is <clears throat> remorse, betrayal, maybe even despair. There are no real good guys. There's, you know, darkness. What about the end of this book? Well, I don't want to give too much away, with the, but I would say that over the years, Le Carre has, has gotten less bleak. In the context, I think, of spy novels, he's still bleak, you know, because most of them do have the hero winning, whereas Le Carre, you, you always do something where even where the hero wins, 
somehow the hero pays for winning, you know, that, that you sacrifice yourself in order to win. But, but nevertheless, maybe because he's gotten older, and at least I know as I've gotten older, I'm less purely drawn to things that just end in bleakness and death, maybe because I can feel myself tending in that direction <laughs> myself. <laughs> but, you know, he's 88, and I think somehow at a time of especially among his class of kind of widespread despair over the state of things. I think, I think he doesn't, he's not going to give you an ending that's like Spy Who Came In From The Cold, where it's basically all ruin. In the new book, we rush relentlessly towards a stunning climax. On the last page, our heroes disappear into the sunset. Is this goodbye from John Le Carre? I don't think so. I mean, because he can't stop writing. He talks about it in interviews, but it's clearly true. Philip Roth, I think when he hit 80, packed it in and just thought, yeah. Whereas one of the good things about being a genre writer is that you, in a way you don't have the same kind of literary reputation to shepherd. Whereas Roth had done all these books, and I think, I think he thought he had had a great 30 years and didn't want to start writing lesser books. Whereas if, if, you're, if you're writing spy novels, somehow you never get to be considered in the conversation of the great writers of your time. So therefore, you don't have to write, so you can just write the books that interest you. And it's probably his way of engaging with contemporary reality. And I think when you're in your 80s, it's so easy to feel like that's slipping away from you, that by constantly following a story and being involved in it, it actually keeps you part of the world in a way you feel you might not otherwise be. So I'm expecting another one. We've been speaking with John Powers about the new book by John Le Carre. It's called Agent Running in the Field. John, thanks for coming in today. I was happy to be here. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 